Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Michelle is a managing director and financial advisor, where she brings a passion for financial literacy that marries the science of wealth management with the art of financial therapy. Michelle's childhood informed her career path. Growing up, yacht poor. She was surrounded by the trappings of wealth, but never knew her family wasn't far from the catastrophe. Michelle questioned her financial story, and she realized she needed the synergy of knowledge, skills, and emotional composure to be financially literate. She got her start in financial planning with American Express Financial Advisors, where she counseled high net worth individuals to manage their wealth and build their legacy. She served as District Investment Specialist for Northwestern Mutual Life, New York City District Financial Planning Specialist for Merrill Lynch, and Vice President Wealth Management for Smith, Barney, and Morgan Stanley before finding her home at Snowden Lane. In 2020, she launched Michelle AB, a lifestyle platform that provides financial education, tools, events, and emotional intelligence on money to women around the world. Michelle, welcome to the One Away Show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Super yeah. excited to talk about many One Away moments. <laughs> so thrilled to so thrilled to share the one that started it all for the path we might go down today. So, Michelle, really enjoyed our first conversation a lot. Really excited to do this. So. What uh, what was your one-away moment that really was the seminal point for you in your career in life? You know, I've heard this expression that we all face a moment in our life where we realize that we're on our own, that we're it, we're going to have to make it happen. And I didn't see that moment for what it was at, at the time, but in retrospect, I can see that after I had graduated from high school, after growing up being told you'll be the first to go to college, you're really smart, you know, we'll support you being taken on college campus tours, and then standing on a dock at a marina at the age of 17, with a brand new yacht in the water, and being told, we don't have the money to send you to college, was that moment for me, that in a, uh, in a non-cognitive instant, my entire body internalized the message that you're on your own. And I often, when I think back to that moment, it it literally felt like my internal organs had all turned chalk white. That's how terrifying that moment was for me. And what's interesting about it, when I think back, is I didn't react at all when my father told me that. He was looking me in the eyes and shrugged his shoulders and said, we don't have the money to send you to college. And I didn't react. I didn't say a word. I didn't uh, express any anger. I didn't cry. I was stoic. That was because my brain <laughs> literally started, the wheels started cranking. And I was standing there staring at him thinking, college costs a lot of money. I don't have any money. How am I going to get some money? Okay, I got to get a job. I literally went into action mode. And what I think is kind of remarkable about that is I, I listened to an interview where Hugh Jackman, the actor, was being interviewed. 
he grew up in Australia. And at the end of his uh, college career, he realized that he majored in the wrong thing and he really should have majored in acting. So he finished his undergrad and then applied to acting school. And in Australia, your education is paid for. So when he applied for the acting school, he never thought about that he might get a bill to go to that school. And he did. So he, he got his acceptance letter. And at the end, maybe the same letter, another letter, he owed them $3,000 to be able to attend the school. So when he saw that, he threw the letter in the garbage and just said to himself, I'm not go- I don't have the money. I'm not going. And as the universe often does, the next day, he received a check for $3,000 from an inheritance from his grandmother. I love how the universe works. But to me, what's really remarkable in comparison to me is my wheels got turning on, okay, I don't have any money. How am I going to get the money? Which was very much my upbringing around the things that you have to pay for in life, right? So in education in the United States, it's something that you have to pay for. Whereas in Australia, an education is not something that you have to pay for. And just the mindset difference of, I don't have the money in both situations, but how one person can react differently than another person in the exact same circumstances. Well, one, that must've been heartbreaking, but I can totally see your mind going into overdrive. of Like, what am I going to do? Two questions from that is one, I want, I would love to know when you finally were able to process the event, maybe more emotionally uh, and, and when that maybe came, maybe it was years down the road, maybe it wasn't. So I'm really curious about when it finally, you were able to process it, what happened? And then also, what was it like growing up? Was it a, you were always having to pay for stuff. You live very frugally or, you know, your parents didn't have a lot of money for things. Maybe answered by what question speaks to you first, but from that experience, right? It's one that seems extremely traumatic, yet you just blaze right through it at the time. I'm sure process later, but I'm also sure it signifies some things from your past for how you were raised. So really curious, um, pick your poison. Yeah, great questions. I'm going to go with the growing up first. My parents are were what I call high performance defiant. And there are a lot of us out there, which basically just means how you do one thing is not how you do everything, contrary to popular belief. And my parents were, you know, very good hearted people, hardworking, ran a great business, were very, very successful and successful in lots of different realms of life, but not with money. Particularly my father, the more money that was earned in the household the more that got spent. So the way that I grew up, which sounds, you know, it's very, very hard to relate to what I'm going to express right here for most people. But I grew up with having private airplanes, you name the sports car, we had it in our driveway at one point, Um, ultimately this yacht. And what outsiders didn't know was that every single time my parents bought a big ticket item, we were literally down to our last five bucks. So I also grew up with our home being within an inch of being foreclosed on and my mom, you know, using the envelope system in a shoebox, doling out cash to be able to have grocery money for us. So money was super, super, super tight, but yet super, super, super big at the same time. And it was all extremely uncomfortable. The pattern was 
because they say like we are driven, our money behaviors uh, were motivated by spending for power, love, freedom, or security. And power was a very big dynamic, a very different dynamic between my parents. And the philosophy growing up was he or she who makes the money has the power. So my mom was complicit in a lot of this, but also didn't step into her power, uh, regardless of how much money that she made. And my father had this habit of asking for pretend permission. So for example, when I was 10 years old, he spotted a, a Jaguar, a car that he really wanted. And this guy was selling it. It was a great deal. My mom happened to be out of town. He called her and he asked her, you know, I really want this car. Is it okay if I get it? And she said, no. And my brother and I happened to be home with my father for the two weeks that she was away. He bought the car anyway and put it in our garage and swore my brother and I to secrecy, which made me feel like a crumb when my mom would call that I knew, you know, there was this car sitting in the garage that she was going to come home to. I also, at the same time, used to think, you know, dad, do you th- and to myself, dad, do you think she's not going to notice this car? But this pattern of pretend permission kept coming up and coming up. And I witnessed this kind of behavior go on between my parents. And I felt the fallout of it. It was like breathing secondhand smoke, the tension that was in the house between my parents. But it didn't have a direct hit, you know, to use a boat analogy. It was like getting hit with a torpedo after being promised, you know, we'll support you to go to college. And literally my parent, my father bought a boat. It was the first time it was a direct hit to me. It took me 32 years to process this, what happened at that marina. And when I say 32 years, what I mean is it's not that I didn't think of it. It's not that I wasn't aware of it. It took me 32 years to speak the truth of it, to actually tell the story. It took me that long. I used to always use this expression that I threw myself into busy to cope with it intentionally. And we use that term crazy busy all the time. And I was crazy busy on purpose because it saved me from any sort of social judgment that I was fearing around what would people think of who we are and what would people think of me that my parents made a choice to buy a boat instead of send me to college when they very well knew that that was the path. It took a long time. I mean, it was the depths of shame and vulnerability really, or it was the depths of shame and it was the vulnerability actually that pulled me out of it. Mm. And I can tell you what pulled me out of it, but I'm going to take a breath. <laughs> wow. Well, let's just take a minute to process all of that. Right. I mean, what, uh, what childhood events, I mean, I I'm just putting myself in your shoes, right. As a 10, 11, 12 year old high schooler, it's like you grew up with this complete, I mean, if I'm wrong by saying this, stop me in my tracks, but it's completely, let's just call it misaligned and inauthentic childhood to the outside world. I mean, did, did you show up in school and with friends and feel this sense of like you had to like hide what was like the truth within the house? Yeah. Yeah. It was the big secret. No one knew. And misaligned in a childhood is a very, very kind way to put it, Brian. So I'm glad those are the words you used um, (laughs) because I'm 
a little harsher with about that. I mean, I have two children of my own and as I've watched them grow up and have thought about the different things that I witnessed or knew about at the same ages that my parent, my, my own children have gone through it. It's uh, it's not reliving it again, but it, it just really reinforces the magnitude of learning things ahead too ahead of your time when you're not ready for them as a kid. It, yeah. It's um it can be very damaging. I mean, I've obviously made lemon out of lemonades with my life from this, but yeah, it was a deep, dark secret. Family did not know that we lived this way. Friends did not know. No one knew. Wow. Okay. So uh, you said it took 32 years to come to uh, processing the, the shame uh, and the way you're able to do that was through the vulnerability of maybe sharing, but what, how, how did you start to process this total misalignment and big secret uh, of shame that you kept with you for so long? So I, um, this is, this is a little bit circular. I'm going to describe this, but um, I had picked up on a story about Megan Kelly, the newscaster. And it was a story about how she went from being rejected from the communication schools. I think it was at Syracuse to then becoming a lawyer and then ultimately entering mainstream media. And in that story, she talked about, you know, managing her career and her family, husband and three young kids. And the reporter got her to really open up about how she felt about money. And she literally said, I lie to my children about how much money we have. And if I have money, what makes them think they have money? And I was reading this and was really fascinated by this. What I'm fascinated by is the disconnect between our status and our state of mind. And they are often not one. So there's a lot of people out there with misaligned status and state, which I grew up, you know, uh, completely opposite, you know, status and state kind of marriage. The reason I'm telling that story is I actually uh, was using my network to try to meet Megan to work with her on that issue because Mm -hmm. I don't know her, but I venture to guess that she has an accountant, a lawyer, a couple of other attorneys working for her. She's an attorney, but she's got advisors. And I call that missing the forest, the financial forest for the trees. And it's a very, very common problem. So what ended up happening was on the way to meeting Megan Kelly, I met a former CEO of a major publisher who said, you have such original ideas, you need to write a book. It was the process of writing the book that I had to decide for myself, how much of my story am I going to put in this book or not? And originally, I was going to put any of my story in. And I came around to people are going to want to know why you're interested in this or how you got interested in this or how you got good at helping people kind of marry their status and state together. And I ultimately decided, okay, I'm going to tell my story. It was the process of writing. And there was probably a two-week period where I was journaling. I was forcing myself literally to journal and and really go back and relive everything that had happened from the moment on the dock forward till I was probably 32 or 35 years old. And I didn't just write it in a way of the events that happened. 
as best as I could, I went and actually relived all of the emotions and wrote all of that out. Mm. And that was a big breakthrough for me. Uh, and being able to do that for myself, I then decided, this is so crazy. I decided to take a one day public speaking course. I hadn't done any public speaking in a while. I said, okay, I'm going to take a refresher. And it was right around the time I was journaling. And I made a little vow to myself that if I had a chance to tell my story during this public speaking class, that I would. And again, the universe delivered the very, very last assignment of the day in this group program was to get up and tell the class any story from your life that you wanted to, and you had two minutes to do it. I panicked so much. I thought I was going to have a stroke. <laughs> and the, the coach in the room, we sidebarred outside and I explained to her the situation, the promise I had made to myself and why I was having such a hard time. And she literally looked me in my eyes and held my hands and just said, just tell me your story. Just tell me your story. And as the tears would come up, she would just say, just don't push them down. Let them come up. She listened to my story through my jerky tears. I got it out. And then she said, do you think you can walk in the room and tell the story? And I, yeah, I think so. And I did. And I, it's not a point of if I did or I didn't cry when I did it. I, I didn't cry because just telling that one person had given me so much healing that I was able to do it. This is such a long one. It answers your question, Brian. Oh, amazing. This is so good. The, the thing that I didn't know that was waiting for me on the other side of this, right? Because there, for me, there was like, there was life before my actually going to that class. And there was life after telling my story. And what was waiting for me was an inner peace that I had never experienced. And it's kind of ironic that, from the outside looking in, Michelle looked like she had it all going on, which I did. Successful family, good kids, great career, good friends, healthy. Like, yes, I'm, I was having a great life, but I was missing the state of mind. And I, it's not that I was a nut. It, it just was, I was missing that inner source of peace that is like the linchpin that gives you all that alignment. That's the part that I was missing. And I didn't even know that I was missing it. That's one so profound. Uh, <laughs> reminds me of all the content I'm reading um, from Brene Brown right now about like sharing shame with others and healing through that and a lot of the other stuff I'm reading. So the journey or path of your healing makes a lot of sense to me. To, you you said it was like the missing link that brought you into alignment. Was it, would you also say that maybe it was uh, your parents with the yacht that you said on our own, you know, you said it's the first time you realized you're on your, your own. Um, mm -hmm. So from, it seems like from that point forward until 32 years later, it was a sprint to kind of complete yourself in a way through all these external things but maybe when you took a look inside there was still this huge missing hole did you feel mm -hmm. that when you were able to go share with that one person and then publicly that you were able to create a 
not just alignment, but like a, a inner completeness within yourself because now you are fully revealed. Brian, you're so perceptive. What I don't think I really realized it at the moment, but in you know thinking back on that day frequently is what I think it gave me was it restored my sense of belonging. Because if you think about, you know, we live our lives in relationships with other people and that, you know, the need to belong is just innate as human beings and to like surgically remove a part of myself was always going to limit my full sense of belonging in the world. There were pockets of belonging, right? In the places where it wasn't necessarily to be completely vulnerable, but in the most important relationships of my life to just put it out there that, you know, this happened and this was my experience and this is who I am. And this is where I came from just really gave me that sense of belonging that I had been longing for but yet had never fully experienced and really didn't even know what that experience was like. And mm. then that's what it did for me. Right. Because you have to hide, you have to hide a part of yourself for so long. And when you mm-hmm. could be fully revealed, like. Right. Or I thought I did. Right. In that book. That's I- the trick. We think we have to, right? right. but it's, it's trick, right? It, it, we don't. Right. It doesn't make it easy to step into it. For sure. And in that book I told you about before, I literally finished it yesterday and talked about belonging and standing out fully and authentically and vulnerably and like bravely. And like, that's what you did for the first time. So you, mm-hmm. I mean, it totally makes sense. So by the way, one, thanks for your, your just incredible vulnerability and just like going deep because like, I know you've talked about this on other shows, but maybe, I don't know if anyone, well, I'm sure they have, but I'm, I'm definitely probing deeper. So thanks for being open to it. You um, are. Yeah, this is fascinating and like very interconnected. So you you are a one person, but you have extensions of yourself. You have kids and the marriage um, and you have work and these pieces that you bring your full self into. How has this experience really shaped you with um, how you parent and then how you developed your career path? Hmm. I'm going to go with career path first. Pick your, again, I, I, I never... Really ask two questions at once, but I'm, I'm kind of having fun with this. So, so two keep, for two today. So there we go. Keep at your pace. The reason I'm going to go with career path first is that as I was recounting this, I was thinking about a regret that I had when I after I um, did start to tell my story. And and by the way, it, what was remarkable what happened that day is I thought I was ready to tell my story, and clearly when the moment came, I really wasn't. And I just, I hit the lottery in that the right person was there to support me. That was just luck. What I also think is very interesting is you have to be healed enough to tell your story, but yet you also receive healing from someone else in telling your story. So it is a two-way street. There is like this super, super vulnerable moment of like, Am I making the right choice with the right person here to to tell? Because I need this person to receive it in a way that they're not going to crush me even further, right? They're going to help me to soar. But when I look back, there was was a uh, job that I was interviewing for. And the interview process, I met like 12 people over six months in the interview process. And there was this one person in particular 
who I met with, we're sitting in a big New York City office. He has his resume on my desk and he's looking at me. He looks down at the resume, looks at me, looks down at the resume, looks at me, looks down at the resume, and then says, I don't get it. What I think he was referring to now, my resume to me reflected an eight year journey of hobbling different jobs together of consistent employment while I was getting my degree. This was a person who was used to seeing resumes of someone who goes from high school directly to college, and maybe it's you know the first or second job that the person is interviewing for. If I were in that position today, I would have explained myself of why my resume looked the way that it looked. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that there would have been such power in that, but I didn't have it in me at that moment to do it. There would have been such power and it would have said everything this person needed to know about me in terms of my tenacity and my grit and my perseverance, which is what everybody's looking for in an employee. Can I, can I jump in? Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I'm just really called to ask you this. Like, hold this thought. I'm really curious about your parents and their upbringing because it seems like they were always trying to buy to like complete themselves in a way, like to, to like, like think they were valuable through gifts and material goods. And what you're mm-hmm. saying is you didn't realize the power and value that you had by doing all these jobs. And so one with your parents, was there anything they tell you grow up, like moments make sense for like why they maybe, uh, well, I would say couldn't see the value in themselves and had to supplement that. And then with the way they raised you, did they never help you kind of see how special and valuable you were? I had such a dichotomous upbringing. I really did. Um, I mean, on the one hand, my parents always told me you can grow up and do anything that you can put your mind to. And I would hear you're capable, you're smart. So I, I got really positive messages. You know, they weren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not the perfect parent. But I, I definitely got those messages. And actually, I think it was the not only being told you'll be the first to go to college and we'll support you, but also that you're capable of this is the message that came through. So I think what helped me in the moment that arrived on that Marina dock was my identity already was that my path would include going to college. And then I saw a career for myself. Like I always saw that growing up was that that was going to be my path. I didn't have any I really didn't have any other vision for my life. So in that way, my parents did help me because I certainly could have, I could have seen that event very, very differently and it could have changed the course direction, but it was definitely a fork in the road because there was no visibility on how I'm going to make that happen. Right. And we didn't really talk about this, but I'm a, I'm a believer in the will, but we always use that expression that when there's a will, there's a way. And what I believe is the will is the way. And what I mean by that is if you, if you study the will, there's strong will, good will, skilled will, transpersonal will. So I don't know about you or your listeners, but I always hear about strong will and good will the most. And strong will is usually associated with being stubborn. 
strong will really is just being grounded in your conviction around what you want. What I think lifted me out most of all of the four elements of the will was the transpersonal will, which is a belief in something that is much bigger than you at the moment. And I had that belief. And I think it it did come from what I was raised to believe was possible. And I really also was raised to believe that anything is possible. And and I definitely live my life that way. Like I throw out these harebrained ideas and, you know, the t-shirt, you know, underestimate me. That'll be fun. Like that's kind of the fun I have with stuff. I love that. There's always a maybe spiritual or a greater purpose that you can't see in front of you, but you know, is coming to keep you going. Um, Yeah. It's just so important in hard times. Yeah. So with, with, so, so one, thank you for sharing. I just, I'm trying to connect the dots here, one for listeners, but also for the story. So back to when you were interviewing and back to the career path side of things, what, what I'm so curious, like what, what made you not be able to see like the value or the power, the value that you had by this path that you, this windy path of supporting yourself that you were going down? What, what couldn't Mm -hmm. you see about that to say, wow, like I'm pretty awesome, you know, for all the stuff I've had to come through. Oh, you're really hitting on the tough stuff today, Brian. So what uh, I did see it, I did see it in myself. Um, and I, I remember, you know, thinking to myself in that moment with this gentleman, you know, it was like, can't you see that I never had a break in employment, right? That I have worked hard, both like if you look at the dates of when I attended school and when I was working, you can clearly see there's a successive increase in responsibility of the different jobs that I was taking. Obviously he didn't see it that way, right? He was, his point of view was something more traditional. It was my job to articulate that. The truth of the matter was it intimidated the living daylights out of me to do that. And that was also part of what I struggled with was I knew who I was inside And I struggled with articulating who I really was to someone like I, you know, if, if I had a do over on that and he said, I don't get it, I would say, let me clear that up for you. And maybe I would tell the boat story. Maybe I wouldn't, doesn't really matter if it would have been relevant at that point. It it would have been my job to explain the path of how I ended up there in that office with him. But it wasn't the college path. It was, what brought me to this destination of sharing, you know, this space and this oxygen with you. Totally. Wow. That's powerful. Makes sense. Thank you. Thank you. So my kids. By Michelle, uh, you weren't expecting this on a Monday morning, were you? No, no. I'm really, really ga- glad. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, you know. My, my aura ring this morning was like, you just go for it today. <laughs> Great. Well, wait, wait, wait. Universe, you know. Yep. Wait, yeah, so, you go right for the heart. Shoo. So wait, don't don't go to community. Can we not go to the kids yet? Okay. I'm just. I I want to. I'm with you. What you're doing today, I think, really very much lines up to helping your younger self in a way, right? Not have the mm-hmm. hardship that you faced. Tell us about getting into the field that you're in. And perhaps where you find the most fulfillment and joy in what in what you're doing today. Well, okay. Where my life's work 
really stems from, and once again, you're putting a finger in the ointment, Brian, is that I watched my parents who I've said were, listen, they've made their mistakes. And what happened to me on the dock was pretty cruel. That doesn't make them horrible people. It's a horrible situation. And they were successful in different realms in their life, right? So like we all, we all bring different roles or we play different roles. There are different contexts to different parts of our lives. We have different relationships in different parts of our lives and we want something different from the relationships and you know, our office life versus our home life, right? Or nonprofit life versus something else. And my parents were um, just defiant when it came to money. What I remember thinking as a kid to myself was you guys have all the ingredients for this to be a phenomenal aspect of your life. Like I remember like eight, nine, 10, 12 years old thinking this to myself and you just can't get out of your own way. If only you could get out of your own way would be like, I would see my parents do stuff. And I literally in my head would go, if only you two could get out of your own way. I didn't have the power or the authority is probably a better word. I didn't have the skills, but I desperately wanted my parents to be happy and to be whole. And that is the core of why I ended up doing what I do. So I started and still have a career in financial advising and have now branched out into teaching people how to talk about money by understanding the psychological and behavioral aspects of money, which was what I was trained in first when you think about it. Before I knew what a stock or bond was, I certainly was well-educated in the fact that we have emotional connections with our money because I was living and breathing that. That's where it all stems from. There's a little part of me, or there's a younger part of me that I give to every single person I come in contact with that wasn't able to give that to her parents. And like, it puts a smile on my face to even say that. That might sound sad, but it's, I think it's a beautiful thing when you take, you know, the, the lived experiences that you know could be better in the world and you're just trying to do your part to leave something better. Totally. Well, one, I want to say to be eight, nine or 10 and have that recognition or awareness, I think is so profound, especially when what you're going through is probably traumatic without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you probably had an involved soul back, you know, back when you were younger. And then two, yeah. it's neat that you've really aligned your, your work of today with, with helping people. Right. So what you're, you know, you're living in my, what from outside looking in, unless there's some big secret. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's going to get revealed here. If there is. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing work that's aligned to kind of your core as well. And like your own story. And so you, you can show up so authentically in those moments, you find the platform on which to, to help others through it. So, I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. I, I, I grew up where, I, I think I saw, I, like, I think my parents really enjoyed what they did, but I, I wanted to find the, an even deeper connection with embodying the things about myself and my work, right? And integrating that like, mm-hmm. deeper. Um, so anyways, it's neat to hear how 
you have tried to do just that for yourself um, in the professional aspect of Michelle. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for that acknowledgement. And I'm happy that you feel that way about your work. I mean, I do feel like my values are very, they are integrated. You know, we don't have a different set of values for one area of our life than another. Right. And right. I, mine are integrated in all parts. And um, I feel very lucky about that. I mean, you know, 17 and looking at a yacht and trying to figure out your college, that'll send you into a tizzy. Like you might read books, like what color is your parachute when you're 17 years old, which is usually like, you know, a mid-career, mid-level manager reading that that book. And part of what that did for me, because I really had to figure it out of, you know, what is my path? It, um, I, I became really serious about it, which I don't think is unusual for you know a teenager going into their 20s to really be asking the questions what am i supposed to be doing with my life you know am i supposed to be going to school am i not should i major in what does my career look like do i want to get married you know all of the really big big questions and when i think back on it i feel like i was on overdrive in trying to answer those questions it felt like a quest but I'm not so sure that my experience is so different from a lot of people trying to answer the same questions at the same time. I think that's a very, you know, it's sort of a rite of passage kind of a time. But in that process, I was definitely uh, very grounded in meaningful relationships and meaningful work. I just kept, that was sort of a guidepost for me that relationships and work that at the end of the day, I feel like had meaning for someone else, which would also be meaning for me. I knew that was going to make me happy. And that was, that was always the filter I was looking at my career through. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say to you is what stands out is that yacht event. I think a lot of people do have those questions, but they don't face those questions maybe until four or five years out of college. Right. Cause you see a lot of, like a lot of my friends from college who like are like, like I've just evolved, I think from the relationships in a way where like they, it took them three or four years to realize they were going to be miserable in the job because they, right. they, you had an event that maybe expedited your, your process of asking those big questions. So you've mm-hmm. had to face them a little bit earlier. And I think that's, what's really interesting. And then you did face it pretty head on. Right. Yeah. And without that event, maybe you wouldn't have tackled those questions at the time that you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with, with your kids and your family, like how, how is, you know, this experience, it seems like it's unfolded in every aspect of your life. How has it influenced how you raised? I know you said, I think on our first call, your son read the parachute book as well. Um, and it's very much like you, but uh, I'm curious how, what you learned growing up has influenced how you've raised a family. Well, where money is concerned, I think the way I would describe how I talk with my kids about money is I'm responsibly open. So what I mean by that is, you know, things were shared with me that I wasn't ready to know at, you know, young ages. And I've thought really deeply about that. And I think it was a situation in the household where only the four of us knew my parents, my brother and I, what was going on. So they're really, you know, to release some stress it wasn't like my mother could go call her mother, right? No one knew. So I think I became, you know, 
a way for my mother to talk about how she was feeling because she needed relief from her stress. Now, mm. it was never intended to hurt me, but it was inappropriate because I was too young to handle that, right? right. So that's why I call it being responsibly open. So I'm, I stay very keenly aware of just quickly checking in with myself. I'm going to share something with my kids. Is this, am I being, am I sharing in a responsible way where this is age appropriate? Like that's always on my mind. And I, I'll tell you a very funny story, Brian, as you can imagine, um, when both our boys were born, I practically left the hospital room to go open up their 529 accounts because, you know, college funding is high priority for me, for them. And I didn't quite leave the hospital room directly, but not shortly after right. the kids were getting processed. Right. And I have shown them, you know, I've talked about it. Um, I never shared my story with the kids until, until they were ready for it, like early teenage years. And um, anyway, I was showing my younger son, uh, the account statements had come in and yes, I still get paper statements. Um, and I do that on purpose. <laughs> actually, I actually do it on purpose because it cut it, because I'm show, I actually want to show my sons like the statements right. and it's tangible. And from a behavioral standpoint, receiving something in the mail is going to remind me versus me having to go remember to look at something. So I was showing him the statements and they, they're three and a half years apart. So I'm showing my younger son that day and there's a discrepancy in the account value. My older son has more money just because there's been more time to save and invest yeah. in that account. And I tried explaining that to him and kind of compounding of money and the cycle of when you start investing your money versus another might all, you know, might actually work in your favor or gives you more of a tailwind than another period of time. None of that was flying. And then he just looked at me and said, if you loved me, you'd top mine off. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> you'd make sure these are equal, right? So it just is very like we've had some really funny moments, but um, the way I parent is I've obviously made education uh, is a high value of mine. And that doesn't come from just the experience I had. It literally comes from one of my strengths is being a learner, right? I'm a, a lifelong student. I think you are, too. I mean, I blow dry my hair reading books in the morning sometimes if I'm really into something. Education's been important. I I have I don't want to say I've expected that my kids are going to go to college. What I've expected is that they're going to get an education to be able to live their life. So I'm totally open to how they get that education. It looks like they're going down the college path, but if they said that they wanted to do something different, I'm a big believer that they are on their path just like I was and I think my role as a parent is to support them to help them be become who they're meant to be, you know, without, they're going to have their own dramas and traumas in life. So I try to minimize any of the drama and trauma that I might cause them. I feel like is my job too. Um, but for money, it's a pretty, I'm an open book. I'm also a big believer that when kids ask questions, they're ready for answers. Mm. And the trick I always use is if they ask me a question and I answer and they don't keep asking me for more information, then I've scratched the itch. Mm. But if they keep asking me for more, I think they're ready for more. 
right? And it's not usually that they're asking, they're asking for more information to understand their initial question is usually what, what happens. But my kids have asked me like, how much money do you make? How much money do we have? What's in my 529? How did you do this? You know, I, um, I'm open about that. I'm also, I try to equally be open around process, which is something that you can be open about without actually talking about numbers. So for example, if you're buying a new car, you can be really open around what your budget is, you know, in round numbers, but you also can be open in the type of car you're looking for and the features you're looking for and the features you're not looking for. And what I think that opens uh, a child's mind to is the decision-making process and the trade-offs and the pros and cons and all of that, you know, pick anything that you're going to buy. All of that relates to sound money management, both, you know, an initial purchase and then on an ongoing basis. So I think kind of opening up uh, how one makes decisions is, I try to make that part of what I share with my kids. It's uh, I think pretty remarkable how you've taken your life lessons and really built them into every aspect of your life. And what a cool way to raise your kids. And I'm sure they're super appreciative of their mom. Um, and uh, trust me, I'm not going to ask you your account balance uh, in your bank account, but uh, I'll save that for them. Well, Michelle, this was a, this was a, pl- a pleasure today. Uh, so like, so fun and like heartfelt. Uh, if people wanted to reach out, find you, speak to you where uh where in the world can they do that how the the two best places are linkedin and my website so my website is michelle ab with two two l's michelleab.com and actually on the michelleab.com website on the homepage is something that i put together called the success formula guide what it guides people through is looking at successes that they've had in different areas of their life, not just money. And it guides them through a process of seeing kind of the method of their madness. Because when you start to look at different successes, you start to see patterns of how you accomplish something from point A to point B. And I'm a very big believer that the successes that we have in other areas of our life all create transferable skills that we can use when it comes to our money. And what people end up with at the end of that guide is like a 30,000 foot view to their own ways that they are resilient or persistent or how they use their social capital as much as their financial capital or other forms of capital that we, that we have. Well, uh, we'll, we'll be sure to highlight that. Um, Thank you for showing up, Michelle, how you did. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. And uh, excited to share this. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.